The text that we're going to focus on today is Ephesians chapter 3. Um, the verses are going to be verses 8 to 21. Verses 8 to 21. If you picked up a Bible by the door, um, those are going to be um, on page 1159, 1159. If you brought along your own Bible, I have no idea what page it's on. But I know that Ephesians comes after Galatians and comes before Colossians. If you're at Corinthians, go a little bit farther. If you're at Revelation, you've gone too far. Find, uh, find Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses, um, verses 8 to 21. And excuse me, I said it was page 1159. It's actually 1157 if you brought, uh, took one of our Bibles that we provided for you. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory." For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ." And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. So as we start a new year, it's always good for us to sort of realign, to recalibrate ourselves as a congregation. Because as you go through a year, there are a number of different things that can happen that either throw off your priorities, uh, cause you to forget why you gather as a congregation, why you exist as a congregation. And frankly, over a year, sometimes you can lose a little bit of inspiration for living the way that um, you as a congregation have come together and said, this is how we, we want to, to hear God's word and to interact with our community. And so my hope is that every year we take at least one Sunday at the beginning of the year to sort of uh, reorient ourselves to why we exist as a congregation and, and what that looks like. And uh, my hope is that these Sundays will not just be uh, something that we, we hear once and then we move on with our lives, but that they would sort of become a compendium, a resource for us to go back to as a congregation to say, okay, here's our identity, our family values, if you will. And for those who would maybe come into our church later, this would be a great place for them to start as well. It was sort of an assimilation sort of process that they can understand, here's what the congregation is about, here's why we exist. So in that sense, what I, what I hope this sermon does is uh, it becomes something that we all go back to, that we think about, and we try to align ourselves with as we move forward together. Um, our theme for today and our theme for this year is a life lived in Christ. 
a life lived in Christ. And um, we're going to show exactly how that's all going to play out. But what we're going to first start with today is um, asking ourselves, you know, how Jesus constituted the church should have impact, it should have implications for how the church still functions today. And ask ourselves what this looks like, because uh, this is true. We're a country that is uh, run by a constitution. Our neighbors in the South are the same way. Because as a democracy, there's no one person who defines the way the nation works or how it operates. But Jesus is different. Jesus is not a democracy. Jesus is one person, and his church, therefore, under him, is not going to change because he doesn't change. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we think about how Jesus constituted the church, that's going to help us understand how the church ought to still function today. So how did Jesus constitute his church? With two words, follow me. When Jesus walked around this earth, those are the two words he said to the men who he called to be his disciples, follow me. That call to follow Jesus was at first a call away from something. In a couple weeks, we're going to read the call of St. Peter. In the account, Jesus gives Peter this amazing catch of fish and then immediately calls Peter to follow him. And so Peter leaves that catch of fish, maybe the biggest catch of fish he's ever had, a huge payday for his family business, on the shore to follow Jesus. It was a call away from something. I think it's easy for Christians when they hear about being called into discipleship in Jesus to think first about getting rid of the sinful parts of our life, right? When you become a Christian, you have to stop doing bad things. And that's true, but that's not all that Jesus calls us away from. In a sense, he also calls us away from good things. Think of Peter. He left his family business. The text tells us that he was working with his brother and his father, and it seems that he had employees that were under him. He leaves this huge payday to follow Jesus. Now, it's not that Peter stopped fishing. We actually see that he continues to be a fisherman throughout the Gospels, but he doesn't do it the same way with the same priority that he used to. Maybe the way we could say it in modern times is that he went from being a business owner to like an independent contractor. He cut back on his hours, worked when he could, but he had something bigger going on. And there's probably something for us to learn in that, that the call to be a disciple is necessarily a call to reorient our life or, or reorder our priorities. I think sometimes people believe that they can become a Christian and then essentially live their life the exact same way they always did and sort of just sprinkle Jesus on top of it. Now, Jesus is going to take you out of the way that you used to live. And while you may do some of the same things you used to do, you will not do them with the same amount of time or energy or effort or resources that you used to. You necessarily are called out of that life into new priorities. But there's another aspect to this calling away idea, and it's probably the most important piece, and that's that Jesus calls us away from responsibility. Now, that might sound a little bit weird to you, but what I mean is that Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. He doesn't say to them, I've got a job for you. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm already doing something. I want you to come along. What is about to happen does not depend on you, but I need you to be here for it. That means that for Peter and the other disciples and for us, what happens in a life of discipleship does not depend on us. And I don't know about you, but that is completely freeing. 
Because the rest of the world and the rest of my life is telling me that it all depends on me. It depends on me whether I'm successful in my job. It depends on me whether I have enough money or I have enough accolades or I have enough acknowledgement or my family is thriving or my congregation is thriving. That is what the world is telling me and maybe you feel the same. Jesus is calling you to say that stuff, it does not matter anymore. I have something far more important, far bigger, and guess what? It doesn't depend on you at all. You are free to enjoy this journey with me because I'm calling you to follow me. This is the freedom of the Christian. Christians have this amazing freedom to say, though I have work to do and though I want to serve my neighbor, I am in no way obligated to do it and I have no feeling of responsibility that my effort is what accomplishes it or gives me any sort of status because of it. You are free. You're free to go to school or to go to work or to parent your kids or to be a friend without any fear that your behavior is going to change your status before God. You are called out of that. Now, not only did Jesus call these disciples out of that life, but he also called them into something. We usually call this discipleship, right? Because the disciples, that's what they're referred to in the scriptures, were those he called. Discipleship is related, of course, to the word discipline, which my definition for discipline and therefore discipleship is living according to an upstream belief. Living according to an upstream belief. The idea is if you're swimming upstream, that's harder than swimming downstream. There's something worth getting upstream, but it's going to require some effort to get there. That's discipline and therefore discipleship. Right? We believe that life in Christ is more valuable, is better for us than the life we are currently living. And therefore, we enter into a discipline, a discipleship, according to that upstream belief. Now, what we need to understand is that discipline is something that you are always engaging in. If you've ever tried to get back in shape, or to lose weight, or to accomplish some big task, you know that you really can't take time off from disciplining yourself in that endeavor, right? You can't say, well, I'm trying to lose weight on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, but Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, I'm going to take it easy. You can't do that. It's, it's not discipline, right? Discipleship is a life lived. And that's important for us to understand. Excuse me. <coughs> it's important for us to understand because it's so easy to start thinking of Christianity or our faith as something that we do at some times, but not all the time. Discipleship is necessarily all the time. It's a a discipline. It's a lifestyle. Notice when when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't call them to become really good biblical theologians or experts in the scriptures, although they were that. He didn't call them to take a course, and once they finished the course, to say, all right, you're in, just show up sometimes. He didn't ask them to read his book or to pledge allegiance to him. He, He said, follow me, live life with me. And there was so much of Jesus' life that wasn't teaching and preaching that the disciples were there for. They were there when he was eating, when he was sleeping, when he was paying his taxes, like all these things the disciples were there for because that was discipleship. And it still is for us. Discipleship is all the time. But there's another aspect of discipleship that I want to focus on maybe uh, for more of our time today. And that is that discipleship is communal. Notice that Jesus calls 12 men to be his disciples. 
That's pretty unique in uh, the pantheon of religious, uh, religion starters. Right? So Muhammad has one successor. The Buddha has one successor. Jesus has 12 successors, if you want to call him that, which is at least implying to us that discipleship of Jesus is a communal endeavor. It's something that we do together. And it's something that we do together with people that we may not have necessarily chosen to be with, we may not necessarily agree with, but we're stuck with. You look at the Gospels, the disciples did not always get along. They had political differences, they had religious differences, they had um, social differences. But Jesus' call to all of them was the same, follow me, implicitly saying, if you want to follow me, you're stuck with each other. And he didn't call them on 12 separate missions. He called them on on one mission collectively together to be with each other, to live with each other as they all followed him together. And there's something for us to learn in that too. It's so easy to believe that Christianity is just me and my relationship with Jesus, but biblical discipleship is not that. Biblical discipleship is communal. This bears itself out historically The early Christian church was known for its communal principles. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series called Destroyer of the Gods. We're going to look at the distinctive characteristics of the early Christian church that took it from being 11 scared guys in an upper room to a movement that took over the Roman Empire. What what made that possible? What, What fueled that fire? Well, one of those things was gathering together. In the world at that time, if you were a practitioner of any other religion, you gathered together maybe on some high holy festival days, but basically religion was a la carte. If you were feeling particularly religious, you had some problem you were dealing with, you needed some help from the gods, you'd go to the temple and you'd do your religious activities. But the idea of gathering together on a fixed day every week was foreign to any other world religion. Now, this wasn't a new thing. Of course, God's people in the Old Testament gathered every Saturday for Sabbath. The New Testament Christians then moved it to Sunday to celebrate their Lord's resurrection. But the fact is they gathered together. They were together every day, every week, because they believed that discipleship in Jesus is communal. This makes sense theologically, too. Right? We say that God is love. Right? We just read this in 1 John in our Advent series. God is love. Love needs an object. It's not love if you're not loving something or someone. And so therefore, if you don't have others to love, you don't have love. Or to use the words that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13, if I do not have love, I am nothing. For those of you who like math, the transitive property, without others, there is no love. Without love, we are nothing. Equals, therefore, without others, we are nothing. Discipleship is necessarily a communal endeavor. And I think for some of us, this, this is a beautiful thing. Right? We love the idea that God is our Father and he's called us into a new family with Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, our brother who calls us brothers and sisters and makes us brothers and sisters. This beautiful new family from all sorts of backgrounds and walks and ethnicities and, and socioeconomic statuses all together calling each other brother and sister. It's a beautiful thing. But then we remember that the family that, that Jesus has constituted here it, is a lot like family. And that's difficult. Because while family is one of the most beautiful things in life and has some of the most profound effects on us, it also can be the most deeply wounding relationships in our life. 
something that a, a spouse says to you or a parent or a child or a sibling goes far deeper than something a friend would say to you. And so while this family can be one of the most beautiful things, it can also be one of the most dangerous things to be around. And that's why I think a lot of people have pushed away from this family. You know this. It's popular nowadays to say things like, I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't really like organized religion. Or people will say things like, I'm into Jesus but not the church. Why do they say that? Because family is hard. It's true as you look at the scriptures too. One biblical scholar said it this way, there are no successful churches in the New Testament. Every single letter that's written to a congregation with the exception of Ephesians and probably also Romans, um, just because they're more general in their theological makeup, like every letter is written to a congregation that has a problem. Either it's false teaching or it's conflict or it's disunity or it's persecution or something bad is going on in these congregations. That's who the apostles are writing to. There are no successful churches in the New Testament. But here's the question. You know, you're all here. You're in a building where organized religion is happening. You're into church, at least enough to make some time on a snowy Sunday morning to be here. So maybe you don't struggle with those same common temptations as the people who are not uh, calling themselves Christians or part of organized religion, but maybe there is something for us to test ourselves in. Like to some of us within the church, keep our distance from the church. What I mean by this is, is it too easy for us to keep our distance from certain people at church? Because they're difficult they don't see things the way that I do. They say things the way I wouldn't say them. They value things that I don't value. They spend their time or their energy on their money on things that I would not spend mine on. And so I keep my distance from them. I have my people that I talk to, but not the rest of the family. Or, or is it possible that we're tempted to not see this gathering as important? Yeah, gathering for church is good if it works for my schedule, if it's you know, good weather outside. But the priority to be here because this is the gathering of the family is, is lost for us. Even though we may not say, I, I'm just spiritual, not religious, we can struggle with this same temptation because family is hard. If that's how we are, though, then we don't agree with Jesus. Because Jesus was into church. He was really into it. If you look at the Gospels, you see that Jesus was regularly going to the temple or the tabernacle to read the scriptures, to pray with God's people, to give his offerings, to participate in encouraging body of believers. He was really into church. And this all in the face of a very corrupt church that he was participating in. You think this family is hard. Go to the New Testament church. That Old Testament church that had been, that Old Testament church that now was becoming the New Testament church that was full of infighting and racial tension and corruption with the leaders, Jesus was still there. Now he critiqued that church, no doubt, but he never abandoned it. He didn't say, you know what, the people at this church, they're just not that friendly. I'm going to go to a different church. He didn't say, you know what, it's just too much drama there. I can't be part of that church. 
He didn't say, you know what? I have tried and tried and tried and tried, but these people do not listen to me. I'm going somewhere else. He never abandoned the family. Even though they were difficult, even though they were flaky, even though they were corrupt, Jesus was into church. And he trained his disciples the same way. Those who he called to follow him, he made them follow him into the church to see how he was fighting for the good of the church, for the redemption of the corrupt church. And the same is true for us. It's so easy to keep our distance because we say either the church or those people are not the way that we want them to be, but that's not to agree with Jesus. But then we also understand that discipleship is not just in the church. It's also outside the church. Jesus was into church, but not only into church. If you read the Gospels again, you see that there are a number of scenarios that happen in the synagogue or in the temple, but the majority of them don't. They happen out at the road or the city gates or in someone's house. Jesus saw discipleship, his work, as something that happens mostly outside of church. And how easy it is for us to think that being part of a church or being Christian or serving is something that's done within the churchly context. Right? I volunteer to play music or to set up for worship or to do tech or, or to do a life group or whatever it is. Like All these things that are within the context of, of our congregation, those things are necessary certainly, but, but the way Jesus sees it is that your discipleship is lived out mostly outside those things. It's done in the way you treat those people who can't treat you well back. Like Jesus treated people outside of the church context. It's shown in how you bless people who can't bless you back. How you're patient with people who are impatient with you. How you're compassionate to people who are not compassionate with others. Discipleship, like we said, is a life lived. And it's not just lived in here. And as you think about all that, you think, wow, that's quite a challenge, right? That's what Jesus is calling us into. And for North Americans who, at least in general, think of church as sort of one aspect of my life or one bucket in my life alongside a whole number of other things that I'm interested in or spend my time or money on, that can be a challenge, right? To think this is not just a piece of my life, but it is all of my life. Which is why we don't say that discipleship is just a life lived. We say it's a life lived in Christ. That idea of in Christ first is that we embody Christ on earth, which is kind of what we've been talking about up to this point. The scriptures say that Jesus Christ lives in every one of us through our baptism and that when we collectively come together, we are called the body of Christ. And as far as I read it, that's not metaphorical. That's Jesus continuing his work through our hands and our feet and our mouths and our minds. God calls us together to be him to this earth. And that's really powerful because, again, this takes away that idea that your life is your responsibility to manage. Again, the way scripture talks is that you are bought like a slave at an auction. But you are paid for not with gold or silver, but with Jesus' holy, precious, precious blood that he was willing to shed for you. And in that sense, you are not a slave who is under a tyrannical master, but you are a slave under a brother who bought you so that you would not go to hell someday, but that you would live eternally. And until then, he wants to use you to accomplish his good purpose. Your life is not your own. Your life is Jesus's. To do with what he wants as you come together as a body. 
But then more importantly, to be in Christ means that we sit in the heavenly realms in Christ. This is an exact quote from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says that we are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What he means by that is that our life is so guaranteed to be eternal that Christ has already put us at the right hand of God in his body. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we see in the scriptures. But because you have been baptized into him, because you take his body and blood into your body and blood, you are united with the man who sits at the right hand of of the throne of God in the heavenly realms. Which means, in a sense, the, the real you is not here. The real you is there. The real you is saved. The real you is guaranteed eternal life. The real you cannot be touched, or as I said it a couple weeks ago, you're immortal right now. And that banishes all fear. It banishes all anxiety. It banishes all worry. Because who you are is guaranteed in Jesus. It is as true and as real as the presence of Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you understand that, that everything in Christ that you've ever needed, you you already have, you are free to give to one another, to be generous and compassionate and patient with one another like a family. So that's discipleship, a life lived in Christ. Now what I want to do is I want to walk through the text that I I read for you earlier in the service from Ephesians chapter 3 very quickly and just show you how Paul explains this same idea. I sort of gave you like Caleb's sermon and now I'm going to give you Paul's sermon. (laughs) What does Paul say about this? Paul starts by saying, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Notice he says that this is done through the church, not through the pastor, not through the leaders, not through the church body, the church. You all gathered together. You know, I've said this before, but I I will keep repeating it because I think it's so profound for us. Um, All the people who study church demographics say there are always two things that bring people back to church. So if a person visits for the first time, what's, the, what's bringing them back for a second visit? Always two things. There are a number of other factors. There's so many school in comparison to these two things. Those two things are good preaching and the friendliness of the congregation. Always. It's almost like Jesus was onto something, right? <laughs> that he understands that it's not just a, a compelling message from a guy who's a decent speaker with a microphone that brings people together. It's the church. The friendliness, the kindness, the patience, the compassion, the interest in one another's lives, the investment in one another with time or resources, the willingness to support one another in difficult times, all of that is your sermon. Mine lasts for 30, 40 minutes maybe on a day like today. Yours is every moment of your life. And honestly, I think it's more powerful. Anybody can get up here and give you a compelling message for half an hour. But when they see it lived out in your lives, they feel that love from you. That is far more compelling than anything I say. The way that the Apostle Paul says it again, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongue of tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that that I may boast but do not have love, 
I gain nothing. In other words, what Paul says is, I can have a great message, I can have a great Bible study, I can have great programs at my church, but if there's no love, it doesn't mean anything. That love is played out through the church. And all of this on the, the heels of 1 Corinthians 12, where he, he gives us that body of Christ section. He says, the church working together, that's the body of Christ. It's love that it shows for one another is what makes these words that Jesus speaks so powerful when they're heard. So, of course, we want that, right? We want that grace, that generosity, that patience with one another. So Paul wants for us too. He says at the beginning of the text that this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. He says there's a mystery that's, that's shown in the church. What's that mystery? Well, it's the boundless riches of Christ. It's the grace that you show one another, the treatment that you give each other that is undeserved. You know, if you ever watched a, a TV show and you really got into it, um, one of the things you might have done is go back and watch the pilot episode. You ever done this? The pilot episode is never as good as the actual show, right? Because the characters aren't developed, there's not a really interesting plot, just the raw materials of what you know to be a really good show is there. In a sense, the church is Jesus' pilot episode. He wants to show his grace in a way that is not as good and compelling as his work for us or the promise of heaven forever, but yet is still there in its raw form. He wants people to look at us and see a people who operate differently than the rest of the world. So let me ask you this. When people look at your family or your church, do they see people who are unreasonably generous? Do they see people who are unexpectedly patient? Do they see people who are overwhelmingly kind? Do they see people who are balanced, who are thoughtful, who are not given to the latest thing that people are talking about, the latest fear that everyone is fearing? Do they see Jesus' pilot episode? That's what Paul wants for us, and so he prays for us. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you in, with power through his spirit in your inner being. That you is plural. You all plural. He wants us all to be strengthened. In your inner being is what he says, but literally the Greek says in the inner being. The inner being being Christ that you all collectively would suddenly see yourself in the identity of the one man, Jesus Christ, your inner being, as Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. Because only then, when you realize what you have been made in Jesus, will you be able to love each other with that same grace. So he continues, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, um, these words rooted and established, they're kind of the same idea, but from two different angles. Established is like, think cement, like foundation. This is the thing that everything is built on and it's not going to move. Rooted is probably a really good word for it, like to think of roots of a plant. They set the plant in the ground, they keep from moving, but they are also the source of growth, right? So what Paul says is, I want you as the church, having a foundation of love, the thing that makes you congregation is love, and growing through love, through the rootedness that you have in Jesus that you would then have power together with God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's interesting to me that he uses this word grasp 
Because he's talking to Christians here, people who already believe in Jesus, and he says, yet I want you to grasp this. As if even those who would call themselves Christians didn't totally understand it. And we understand this intuitively, I think, the idea between knowing something and experiencing something. He says, when, when you are rooted and established in love, when, when you come together seeing yourself not as individuals, but in your collective identity as Jesus, then you will start to grasp the width and height and length and depth of the love of Christ because you will see it in one another. And once you see it, once you experience it, it'll completely change you. You ever had that moment where somebody unconditionally loves you when you don't deserve it? Somebody forgives you? When someone is patient with you? When they treat you with the same grace that Jesus treats you? It changes you. And yet how many of us don't have that? We don't have that that deep-seated understanding of how Jesus works because we've seen it in one another. You know, it would be amazing if we did. (laughs) To be able to go out in the world not worried about what anyone else thinks of us because we have a, a family here who so unconditionally loves us that we're never worried about disappointing or losing anyone else in our life. Makes me think of like if you went downtown, but you, you, um, you forgot your wallet and your phone on your trip downtown. At that point, how rich are you? You're pretty rich, but you have no access to any of your riches, right? Isn't the same thing true for many of us? We have the riches of the body of Christ, the grace of God expressed to us through the church, and yet we make no use of it. We don't bring it along with us when we go into our daily life. What Paul is praying for us is that as we gather, we are rooted and established in love so that we can grasp the length, width, height, height, depth of the love of Christ. Now, if we did that, let's just say, would that make everything better? Yeah, in fact, immeasurably so. That's what Paul says next, right? He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is in work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen. In other words, Paul says, once this happens, you will be amazed at the work that Jesus does. It's so easy on a vision Sunday to start thinking about plans and goals and metrics, and there's some value in those things. But what Jesus is calling us to do is the hard work of just loving one another and then letting him do immeasurably more than we could even ask or imagine. So I'm asking you to invest in that. To not think about what we could be, what we could accomplish. To worry about the people who are right here and to love them like family. A new family. The one that Jesus made. So let me finish with a couple pastoral thoughts and then some practical application. First of all, the ideal is the enemy of the real. It is so easy for all of us to think about what we wish Cross of Life was like. Maybe we wish it was like it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or we think it's something in the future. Let's not let the ideal get in the the way of the real. This is who is here. These are the people Jesus has called. These are the people we ought to love. And maybe something will happen in the future. Maybe something immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. But let's let God take care of that and let's do what he has called us to do, to disciple under him and to love one another.
Second, let's persevere. Anyone can put together a compelling vision, but what makes the church particularly unique is that it perseveres in that vision. It sticks it out with one another. It's amazing to me how many times the Bible says things like bear with one another, literally to put up with one another. Like, I don't really like having you around, but Jesus didn't like having me around and yet he still died for me. And so I'm willing to be patient with you. It's so easy to go for the next shiny thing. Let's persevere in what God has called us to be. And then third, real growth is slow and expensive and worth it. It's easy to put together a product or a service and say, hey, come to us. We're the church that fill in the blank. But what we necessarily do when we do that is we create a community of consumers, right? People who come to us because we provide them something. And consumers are very quickly disappointed. But what if instead of creating a product or a service that was interesting to the community or attractive to the community, we became a people who were attractive to the community? So rather than people looking at us and saying, I wish I, I, um, I want what they have, they would say, I want to be like they are. That does not create a community of consumers. That creates a community of disciples, people who walk together following Jesus. So how does this happen? Well, five actionable items for you. I call them spiritual vital signs. And when I come and visit you for your pastoral uh, spiritual, which is kind of like a physical, but it's a spiritual because I'm a pastor, not a doctor. Um, I go through vital signs with you. I say, these are five things that are pretty, pretty uh, indicative of how your spiritual life is going. And they're an opportunity for us to have a conversation about how I can help you grow in these areas. Those five spiritual vital signs are first, corporate worship every week. Corporate worship every week. Let's gather together every week. Um, There is maybe no greater thing that we can do as the church than be together here every week with no excuses. Now I realize sometimes you're sick, sometimes you're out of town, but if you're in town and you're healthy, you're here. And I know we got a bunch of people online today and I'm so thankful that you tuned in online. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be physically here together to love one another, to hear one another's stories, to be patient and compassionate, to invest, to be family. And so while this is a nice tool, it's not the way it's supposed to be. So corporate worship every week. That's what the Bible says. It turns out Jesus has accomplished amazing things for us. There's nothing left for us to accomplish. Let's just gather in love the way that he told us to love. We want to raise Christian children. We want to change this community. We want to love like nobody else. You know how we do that? We keep getting together every week. No excuses. Second, I want you to be in a life group. I talked about life groups earlier in the service. These chances for us to gather together outside of worship to build that community, that solid foundation so we can grasp the love that Jesus has for us. If you're not in a life group, I want you to be. It's so good for you. The people who were in life groups this last trimester have told me the amazing benefits that they've had from being in life groups. If you believe this, if you believe that this community that God is building is valuable, be a life group facilitator. If you don't know how to do that, I'm glad to help you. Anybody can do it. It's really easy. You're just the one who organizes a group of people to get together to do something that builds community. So corporate worship, be in a life group, study your Bible. Whether that's in my Bible study on Tuesday nights, or whether it's in a life group that does a Bible study or it's just on your own, opening your Bible regularly to hear Jesus speak. Because if we are gather, aren't gathered around our, around our Bibles, then what are we gathered around? I mean, I, I enjoy your company. 
But honestly, more people in my life means more problems. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus had called me and loved me, an unlovable person, and then purposed me to love unlovable people, we wouldn't have a church. You wouldn't have a church. The same thing is true for you. So let's go back to that word that, that powers that kind of love, that brings imperfect people together and loves them unconditionally. Let's not try to be a glorified social club. Let's be a, a group of people that are discipling under Jesus. Then number four, let's be generous. Of course, this has to do with your offerings to your church. Our church is doing pretty well in offerings. Um, we're, we're a little bit below budget, but not much. But that's not the point. The point is your love for Jesus and the fact that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that him through, through his poverty, you might become rich. Maybe it's time for you to think about what raising your offerings by 1% of your income looks like. Or maybe if you're somebody who has regularly just done auto draft out of your bank account into the, into the offering, um, maybe time to think about what does sacrificial giving look like? What does it look like to give up something that I have that I like for the sake of the work of the church? But even beyond that, I would just ask you to be generous with the people in your life. Do you have, you have money or time or energy set aside to just love your neighbors? To make them dinner? To, snow, uh, to, to uh, shovel their driveway? To invite them over for a barbecue during the summer? Do you have that space? Or do you need to give up, you know, going to Tim's four times a week? Or four streaming services? And by the way, all the time that you spend watching those four streaming services, can you give those things up to be generous with your neighbors? Then fifth, living evangelistically, um, which maybe sounds intimidating. It's like having that talk with people about Jesus. Um, that's not really what I mean. When I say living evangelistically, I mean just living a life of discipleship. When you follow Jesus, you live so much, different, so much differently than, than anyone else. People see that, and they see the uncanny patience and generosity and kindness that you have for other people they'll ask you about it. So maybe ask yourself, am I living in such a way that, that people would ask me? What makes you live like that? That's your opportunity to share the gospel. Notice what Jesus says in that section from Matthew that we read early in the service. He doesn't say, go into all the world and convert people. He doesn't say that, right? He says, make disciples. In other words, bring people along. Have them do life with you. In the same way that I made well, you do life with me. That's living evangelistically. Okay, I know I've gone long. Last things, then we're done. The Bible refers to us as Christians three times. But it refers to us as in Christ over 75 times, depending on which translation you're reading. And it refers to us as disciples over 250 times. Ask yourself, what's your relationship with this church and with Jesus? Am I somebody who holds the status of Christian, the name of Christian? Or am I living a life in Christ, the life of a disciple, disciplined under Jesus? And then maybe I'll give this quote. This is really powerful for me. Maybe it will be also for you. Richard Halverson said this. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. Let's get back to our roots. God grant it. Amen. Let's pray. 
Jesus, you constituted your church as a group of disciples, and we now in that tradition need your Holy Spirit to strengthen us as disciples. Communally living, loving one another in the way that you have loved us. The world around us, and even North American Christianity, is tempting us to think of Christianity differently than you think of it. So help us, guide us, give us one another for strengthening and support as we all live out this life of discipleship until you have used us the way that you want to use us for the glory of your church and your name. We ask that all in your name. Amen.